well, again, welcome to Faith. Uh, thanks for joining us. If you're here in person today, thank you for joining us. If you are online in your PJs with a coffee or something, um, we are glad to have you with us either way. Uh, my name is Mike, if we haven't met, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And we are right in the middle of a series that we have entitled One Mind. And in this series, we are unpacking together a really dense sentence that the Apostle Peter penned about how to achieve unity in the midst of a day and an age where unity seems almost impossible and where division seems like there's maybe no way to avoid that. And so in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter starts this little sentence out and he starts it off this way. He says, all of you should be of one mind. And again, in week one, we said that that word that we have translated as one mind, that is the Greek word uh, hamaphranos. It's where we get our word harmonious from. And that it's a compound word that literally means same-minded or like-minded or united in mind. And, And we're saying that Peter's reminding us in the midst of all that's gone on in 2020, in the midst of all that's gone on so far in 2021, that those of us who are following Jesus, we are called to be of one mind. Now, I'll just be a little bit transparent. Sometimes I read what Peter's saying here, and I look at what's going on in our world, and I find myself going, okay, is that really possible? Like, I will read the things that that people post on social media about the issues that are contentious in our culture today, And never mind the fact that social media is about the worst platform a person could pick to try and have an intelligent conversation about a complex issue. But the things I read are just ugly and oversimplified and needlessly inflammatory. Or I will listen to the things that people say about one another or to one another. And they're oftentimes void of love and sympathy. Or I'll just turn on the TV and I'll watch what is going on. I'll watch acts of violence that are just commit, just ugly, hate-filled, destructive things done in the name of a cause. And between what I, what I, what I read and what I hear and what I see, I just find myself going, I just, is, is one-mindedness really possible? I find myself asking, Peter, how in the world are we supposed to do that? And Peter says, I'm so glad you asked. Because I want to tell you. Because one-mindedness really is possible, Mike, if you want it badly enough. So if you do, here's what you need to do. That person who, who you are sitting across the table from, who you do not see eye to eye with, who you disagree with, who maybe even did something lousy to you, I want you to respond like this. I want you to sympathize with them. I want you to love them like a brother or sister. I want you to be tender-hearted towards them and to keep a humble attitude. If you'll respond like this, there can be unity. See, Peter wants us to understand that that the pathway to unity is found in how we respond to one another in the midst of the issues that would divide us. So in each week of the series, we're taking one of these responses and we're just digging down deeper and looking at what does it look like for those of us who are following Jesus to respond this way. 
And so in week one, we said, hey, with that person sitting across the table from us who we do not agree with, the first response we're called to is to sympathize with them. To to work to understand and feel what they are feeling. And we're like, yeah, but they're wrong. I know. It doesn't mean you're agreeing with them. You are working to understand and feel what they're feeling. And then next, last week we saw Peter says that the next response that you're called to is you're going to love that person. You're going to extend to them some kind of care and consideration and grace that you would extend to one of your siblings assuming you grew up in a healthy functional family. All right, keep the dysfunction for at home, but he's going, hey, you're going to love each other like brothers and sisters. Treat each other the way you would family even though you're not biologically related to each other. And then as we continue this week, we're going to see that Peter calls us. He says, hey, that person you don't agree with, that you don't see eye to eye with, I want you to be tender-hearted towards them. Now, what does Peter exactly mean when he says be tender-hearted? Well, we're going to unpack that today. But before we do, let's take a minute and pray, invite God to be part of this. Father, this has um, been a tough week for our church family. There's just been a tremendous amount of loss over the course of this last week. Father, I want to pray for the Gales as they mourn the loss of their daughter-in-law, Michelle. Father, I want to pray for the Mikases as they mourn the loss of John's mom, Lee. For the Coopers as they mourn the loss of Dan's dad, Joe, for the Wasmers, as they mourn the loss of Sharon's mom, Ruth. God, I I don't remember a time where I've seen so many people pass in one week. Father, I just pray that you would bring healing to these families over time, that you would meet them right now and that you would comfort them And as they interact with each other in the midst of a season where emotions run super high and critical thinking tends to run super low, please help them to have thick skin and soft hearts with each other. Just be understanding. Fathers, we just continue to look at this this sentence that Peter penned. Father, pray you would open our minds and our hearts to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, what's Peter have in mind when he says, be tenderhearted? Well, the word we have translated here is tenderhearted. It literally means to be good-hearted or to have pity on someone or to, to, to be compassionate. In fact, usually most other places in the New Testament where you will find this word, it is actually translated as compassion or compassionate. And, and actually, it is an uh, ancient Greek word that in ancient Greek literature was used to describe bodily organs, most often the heart, but bodily organs that were used in the sacrificial system. And then later on in Greek literature, it became a word where they would use it to describe how one person would feel for another person just deeply for that person, almost on a gut kind of level. It's actually a word that we still, uh, influences how we speak and how we communicate still today. So it's why when you see somebody who's going through something horrible, 
you'll say something like, my heart breaks for that person. Or, or what, what that person's going through, it makes me sick to my stomach. The idea here with to be tenderhearted, it is to feel deeply for somebody on a gut kind of level. Now, when I was doing research for this series, I, I got to this word and I found myself wondering, okay, what's the difference between being sympathetic and being tenderhearted? Or, or is there a difference? Because sometimes the biblical writers, they will be redundant on purpose. They'll be repetitively redundant to try and make a point, right? And so I was like, is, is this what Peter's doing here? So I started digging deeper into this word tenderhearted, and I discovered that while there is some overlap between being sympathetic and being tenderhearted or being compassionate, there's a key distinction between being compassionate and tenderhearted versus being sympathetic. One that I would argue that, that led Peter to, in, to include it in our list of responses. And, and in fact, I would argue that if you take the time and you're thoughtful and you look at how this, this term you know, tenderhearted or compassion is used in connection with Jesus and the biographies of his life, you see clearly what makes sympathy and tenderheartedness different. Give you a few examples of what I'm talking about here. So you go to, um, let's say, Mark's biography of Jesus' life. All right. Um, in Mark chapter, uh, let's see, chapter one, Jesus runs into a man who has leprosy, right? Now, somebody who's got leprosy, this is somebody who knows what it is to be isolated. Like, he's isolated socially. The minute he's declared to have leprosy, he's not allowed to kiss his spouse. He's not allowed to hug his children. He's not allowed to be within, you know, 6 to 12 feet of another person who doesn't have leprosy. He knows what it is to be isolated from community. The minute he is declared to have leprosy, he is not allowed to live in the same town as somebody who doesn't have leprosy. And he is isolated spiritually. He's going to be told he has leprosy at church by the priest who is then going to kick him out of church and he's told you're not allowed to participate in any kind of public form of worship until you're clean. And oh, by the way, God has personally cursed you for something that you've done. That's why you have this disease. Like we think a 10-day quarantine is isolating. We think, you know, the latest government shutdown is isolating. This man knows isolation. Now, this man, he comes to Jesus, and he's like, Jesus, I'm begging you. If you are willing, you can heal me. You can make me clean. And Mark tells us that Jesus sees this man, and he is moved with compassion for him. Jesus sees the man in his isolation, and it gets him on a gut kind of level. Or give you another example. We'll take this one from Matthew right? Matthew captures this scene in chapter 14 with Jesus after Jesus hears about John the Baptist dying. John and Jesus had a unique relationship. John is Jesus's cousin. John made significant sacrifices in his own ministry to further Jesus's ministry. Jesus once said of John, he says, of all those born of women, which if you think about it is everybody, but of all those born of women, nobody has been born who is greater than John the Baptist. In other words, from, from Adam to John the Baptist, John is number one. Now, John has just been murdered. He's, he's been beheaded by Herod, 
who, who has John beheaded to save face in front of his dinner guests after he makes a rash, lust-filled, booze-fueled kind of promise to his stepdaughter. And so in Matthew, we read about Jesus getting word of this. That when he heard what had happened to John, he withdrew by boat to a private, solitary place. Like his, his cousin is dead, Jesus just wants to get away from it all. Just wants to be alone with his disciples, get away from ministry, get away from the crowds. Just decompress and try and process what has just happened. Only trouble is, Jesus is immensely popular. People are desperate to have him do for him what they know he can do. And so while he's planning to get away from it all, it, it doesn't quite work out for him. Because like somebody, probably one of his disciples, maybe on Twitter, maybe on Instagram, they post, you know, like the VRBO that Jesus is heading to, probably Judas, right? So, so the, people hear about this. And we're told that crowds follow him on foot from all the towns. And when Jesus lands there, he saw a large crowd. So he's like, I'm going to get in the boat, go someplace lonely, be alone with my disciples. He gets there and there's this paparazzi-like crowd waiting for him. But we're told when he sees them, he had compassion on them. His heart goes out to them. Or again, we, we get an example of this in Luke. Luke 7, you have Jesus heading into this town called Nain. He's got this massive crowd of people following behind him, all this anticipation, all this excitement. What is Jesus going to do next? And as he's heading into town at the gates, he's on a collision course with another group of people, very different crowd, making their way out. The crowd coming out is a funeral procession. Now, some funerals are harder than others. This is one of the harder ones. The woman who is leading this procession, she's already done this once before. She did this when she buried her husband. Now she's leading the procession for her son, her only child. Behind her lays her hopes for grandchildren, uh, her hopes for provision, her hopes for legacy, all that and more. She's getting, it's dead and she's going to bury it. So understandably, this woman is a hot mess. When she runs into Jesus, just tears streaming down her face. All of the, the, the signs of mourning, she is wearing them physically. And we're told that when Jesus saw her, that his heart overflowed with compassion for her. Now, these are just three examples of a whole pile of examples that you can take from the Gospels where you see Jesus and compassion. Which may cause some of us to go, okay, that's really nice. Great, Jesus was compassionate. But how does this help me understand the difference between sympathy and compassion? Or between sympathy and tenderheartedness? And here's the deal. The difference in these three passages or in any other one that you will read about Jesus and compassion in the Gospels, the difference is found in what comes next. In all three of these examples and in every other one you will find with Jesus and compassion, there's something that comes next that points to the difference between sympathy and compassion. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to play high stakes Bible trivia right here at church. All right. We're going to go through all three of these examples. I'm going to ask you what comes next and you have an opportunity to shout the answer out. 
So if you shout the answer out and you get the answer right, you look really smart and really spiritual to the people sitting around you, all right? Because we all know if you truly love Jesus, you have been reading your Bible and you have memorized these answers, right? Now's your chance to prove it. At the same time, you could cheat. It's really not that hard. You just look up the passage and you read the answer and you shout it out. Now you look smart. You have to understand, though, if you cheat in church, you risk eternal damnation for your soul. So you got to weigh these things out. All right. Now, I understand I've created a dilemma for some of us here. And you're like, I don't want to look foolish, but I don't want to cheat and go to hell. What am I going to do here? Here's the third option. You, you put on the, the stuffy, brr, brr, I can't believe he's making us play a game at church. Doesn't he know he should be more reverent here in the sanctuary? You just look like you're mad at me, and then it doesn't look like you don't know your Bible, but you don't have to risk cheating in church. So everybody ready? Okay, here we go. Example number one. You got the man with leprosy, all right? Incredibly isolated, comes to Jesus, he's down on his knees. He's like, look, if you just touch me, I can be clean. Jesus moved with compassion. What happens next? He heals him. Yeah, it's really not that hard of a game, right? All right, you, you, you should see, James, you got that correct. You should get two entries in for that book, all right? Which, by the way, it's a, it's a commentary on the book of Colossians because our next series is going to be based off of the book of Colossians. So you can like, get your biblical library going here. So yeah, Jesus sees the guy. Man is desperate, begs to be healed. Jesus says, I'm willing. Reaches out his hand, touches the man, heals him of his leprosy. All right, example number two. Um, John, John the Baptist is dead. Jesus just wants to get away from it all for a minute. Rolls into what's supposed to be a quiet getaway. There's this massive crowd of people. Jesus has compassion on them. This one's a little harder, so careful. You, you Remember, you're risking eternity here. All right? What happens next? Ooh, good. Who said heal them? I heard that. Nice. All right? Jesus heals their sick. They're bringing people from all, you see this all the time in the Gospels. Like, they'll drag some poor sick person from God knows where, get them in front of Jesus, and he's just healing them right, left, and center. All right, number three, Jesus is coming into name. Collision course with the funeral procession. They all stop, like, who's going to get out of the way for who? Who's going to, like, make room for the other person? Jesus sees this woman who is just sobbing. His heart goes out to her. He has compassion on her. This should be an easy one. You should be able to guess this whether you read your Bible or not. What happens next? Yeah, resurrects somebody from the dead. Again, crazy scene. Imagine this at a funeral, right? You got the procession that, you know, the little hearse is coming by. You pull your vehicle out in front of theirs. You stop them. You open the thing up and you put your hand on the casket. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a good way to get into a fight nowadays, right? Puts his hand on the casket. He tells the kid inside to get up and he does. And gives him back to his mother. Now, here's the difference. In all three of these, it's something you see in all three of these passages and every other passage that involves Jesus and compassion in the first four books of the New Testament. Every time Jesus has compassion, he takes action. Compassion, there is an emotional component to this. He feels deeply on a gut kind of level for these people. But it doesn't stop there. 
Every single time you see this word compassion connected with Jesus, there's action. He does something. Something designed to help the person he's interacting with. See, with sympathy, sympathy is it's emotional. I feel deeply for you. I try and understand and feel what you are feeling. But Peter understands, if we're really going to have unity, we need to take this a step further. We need to do more than just feel. There needs to be some action taken as well. And so he says, be tenderhearted. Because Peter understands, with tenderheartedness, there's so much more than just sentimentalism. With tenderheartedness, I feel deeply for somebody. I have deeply rooted feelings for someone that in turn cause me to take action for them. Action that will make a difference for good in their lives. So, if this is what tenderheartedness is, then what would tenderheartedness look like in the issues that are dividing us so well in our culture today? What would tenderheartedness look like when it comes to the issues that are splitting churches today? Well, let's take the issue of race and racism, for example. Plenty to get divided for there, right? All kinds of contention over issues like race and racism right now. What would tenderheartedness look like as I sit across the table from somebody and disagree with them about that kind of issue? Well, not to oversimplify, but I would argue that when it comes to an issue like race and racism, people tend to get polarized to one side of the table or the other. We, we kind of draw the lines, and, and, and I get there's a spectrum, but we tend to get, we're this side or that side. And, and let, me, let me summarize for you how, how Tony Evans, pastor and author Tony Evans, would describe those two sides of the argument, those, those, those two groups who sit on either side of the table in his book, Oneness Embraced. On one side of the table, you got the social justice crowd. And the social justice crowd would argue that, that you have different communities and there are disparities between those two different communities and those two different communities oftentimes are separated by race. And, and the social justice crowd would argue that different people get advantages in different kinds of treatment, oftentimes based on the color of their skin. And that there, there tends to be an unwillingness from the group that gets the advantages and the special treatment to admit that or to relinquish that. So on one side, you've got the social justice crowd. And then on the other side of the table, you have the personal responsibility crowd. And the personal responsibility crowd would point to a victim mentality where racism is blamed for far more than it ever should be, which in turn leads to a dependence on governmental systems rather than taking advantage of opportunities for advancement that are now available. So you got the, the, the personal responsibility crowd and the social justice crowd. And again, I get there's a spectrum, but those are the two categories that folks tend to fall into. And then you have division. And again, I don't want to oversimplify things, but I would argue that a lot of the division that takes place between those two groups happens because people on both sides of the table 
grossly oversimplify the issues. The issues related to race and racism are complex and nuanced. But we like to grossly oversimplify them. We like to build our straw mans, you know, and then blow them down. And I would argue that division oftentimes occurs in churches, in families, in relationships, when it comes to race and racism, because people on both sides of the table refuse to do what Peter is calling us to do in his sentence. We're divided so often over issues related to race and racism. We're like, how in the world can we possibly, like, like how am I going to come together with this person I'm sitting across the table from? How, how is the social justice crowd and the personal responsibility crowd, how could they possibly find one-mindedness? And Peter says, I'll tell you how. Sympathize with each other. Work to understand and feel what that other person is feeling. Love each other like brothers and sisters. With that person on the other side of the table, show them the kind of consideration you would show your sibling. Now, now let's take the issue of race and racism and apply this here, and then we'll come back to tenderheartedness. What could happen? Just think about how the conversation might be different. If, if somebody who was part of the, the personal responsibility crowd did everything they could to understand and feel what the social justice person sitting across the table from them was feeling. Or, or what could happen? What could happen in our churches? What could happen in our families? If somebody who was part of the, the, the social justice crowd was doing everything they could to love that personal responsibility person who sits across the table from them the way they would love their brother or sister who they grew up with. Guys, if we did those two things, that would be a complete game changer. Pick your issue. Pick your person. It'd be a complete game changer. Or Peter says, hey, social justice person, personal responsibility person, that person you're sitting across the table from, you do not see eye to eye from them. I want you to be tender-hearted towards them. I want you to feel deeply for that person. And then I want you to take action designed to bless them in their life. I get that's a radical idea but it could change our world. That's what Peter's calling us to with the issues that would divide us. Now, action like that, I would argue, that doesn't happen overnight. The kind of difference that Peter would like to see made in our, our communities, our families, our, our, our country. This is not like silver bullet, quick fix kind of stuff. But I, I'm telling you, when I see things like this happen, I just love watching it. For example, Faith Covenant Church, we are here in Farmington Hills. You're like, I know that. I drove here. There are people watching online. Easy, all right? So uh, we're in Farmington Hills. We partner with a church 
in Detroit, City Covenant Church. They are located in Brightmore, arguably the most economically depressed neighborhood in Detroit. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there are some disparities between a community like Farmington Hills and Brightmore of Detroit. Access to adequate nutrition, opportunities to, to, to further education, opportunities for economic advancement, they're radically different in Farmington Hills than they are in Brightmore. And I think it's probably not too far of a stretch to argue that the history of racism in our country has contributed to those disparities. We can argue all we want about, you know, like, when did that start? How ongoing is it today? How much did it impact things? It's not a hard argument to go, hey, there's been a history of racism in the United States. And that history has impacted the disparities that exist between a community like Farmington Hills and a community like Detroit. Here's what we need to understand about tenderheartedness. The biblical concept of tenderheartedness, it isn't about rocking a t-shirt. It isn't about a yard sign. It isn't about something you post on social media. And I'm not, I'm, you, you, it's your yard. Put up what you want. It's, it's your, your, your body. Wear what t-shirt you want. It's your social media account. You get to decide what you want to post. But you, what you need to understand, that is not tenderheartedness. Because tenderheartedness, it feels and then it acts. It does something to make a difference for good. And here's the deal. My t-shirt, my yard sign, my social media post, they don't change things. They do little to nothing to address the disparities that exist in a community like Farmington Hills from those like Brightmore of Detroit. Call it what you want. It's not biblical tenderheartedness. Biblical tenderheartedness feels and then does something to make a difference for good. Now, again, I love watching that happen, and I've loved watching that happen between our two churches. I'll give you some examples of what I'm talking about. City Covenant Church, they have a feeding program. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they prepare food, and then they feed people dinner in the neighborhood in an effort to make adequate nutrition available to their community. Now, we participate with, this, with, with them in this. Every second, or excuse me, every second Tuesday of the month, we've got multiple carloads of supplies and food that come from our church, people in our church have donated this, and goes down to City Covenant to help make that feeding program go. I love that our church does that. At the same time, though, I would love to see our church grow in that. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you got the same group of volunteers at City Covenant making that meal, packaging that meal, and passing that meal out. They would love some help with that. I'd love to see people from our church who'd be willing to go down there once a week or once a month and help prepare food, package food, pass food out. For that to happen, there need to be folks here who'd be willing to volunteer to do that. And we need somebody who's willing to stand up and go, hey, I will take lead on that. I'll be the connective tissue between their church and ours. I'll get the groups organized, communicate with City Covenant. I'll make this thing happen. We, we, we're doing this now. We've got room to grow in the action we're taking. Or, or another way this is, this is going on, City Cove, they do tutoring. So every Monday night, they've got kids on Zoom in their neighborhood who need help with school. And on Mondays, you have about 10 folks from Faith Covenant who are lo logging on to Zoom, and they're helping make educational advancement available to those kids. I would love to see the number of people here at our church who are doing that double by the end of the year. 
Or here's another one. Um, back, back during the summer, Pastor Samil and I, we were getting together for lunch when you could still eat in restaurants in Michigan, right? And so we were getting together for lunch and just dreaming about how, how can we make opportunities for, for economic advancement available to people in Brightmore through, through means where the traditional ways of doing that aren't available to them. And so we just started dreaming. That was four and a half months ago. Four and a half months ago, we talked about it here at church in August, and we had dreams. We threw some stuff at the wall. We're like, will anything stick? Well, stuff, it did stick. And so today, we are partnering with City Covenant in a program called At the Table. It is a microloan and mentoring program for young entrepreneurs. In four and a half months, we've managed to put together a structure for a program, pull together a board. We have fundraised, and we have enough money to launch four businesses now. And the goal is... Thursday, the board is going to be meeting for the first time. In February, we are hoping to review applications. And then in April and March, make our first loans. And our goal is to launch three brand new businesses out of Brightmore that are connected to our church in 2021. And we've got the, the first loan for 2022 there in the bank. These are folks who, walking into you know, TCF or, or Comerica, it's just not an option for them. But they're going to get a loan, a 0% loan that they are going to be able to launch their business with because people in our church decided, I don't want to just feel, I want to do something that would make a difference. This is what tenderheartedness looks like. This is biblical compassion. You see that person sitting across the table from you, you feel for them, and then you do something about it. Now, here's the trouble with that. When we sit across the table from somebody, and we disagree with them, especially if they have done something real or perceived to us in the midst of that disagreement, we don't always want to be tenderhearted. We always want to feel for them. We don't want to do something good for them. We've got objections to that. And again, I, I, I hear and see this when it comes to race and racism all the time. I will hear people say things like, well, you, you want me to feel for them? Give me a break. Everybody's feeling for it. Enough of the pity party. Enough of the victim mentality. Let them do something for themselves. You want me to help them? They've had all the advantages in the world throughout the history of our country. I'm not helping them. You, you, you take the issue. You take the person. We are great at coming up for, with, with, with all kinds of objections and reasons for why we should not live into tenderheartedness. So let me share with you why we should be tenderhearted. Regardless of the issue, regardless of the person sitting across the table from us, regardless of what they've done. We should be tenderhearted because through Peter, God himself has called us to be tenderhearted. See, we got, we, we got to decide, who, is a, are, who, who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow the lead of our culture? Are we going to follow the broken desires we have? Are we going to follow Jesus? We're going to be tender-hearted because through the Holy Spirit, God inspired Peter to direct us to be. See, this is a discipleship issue. This is about, am I going to come up with really good excuses not to obey God? Am I going to be obedient to him in this area of my life? 
We are called to be tenderhearted. It's, about, it's not about, can I come up with an excuse to get out of this? It's about, am I going to obey the Lord who I've committed my life to follow or not? So Peter says to us, in the midst of all that would divide you, all of you should be of one mind. And we say, how in the world can we possibly do that? Peter says, I'll tell you how. Be tenderhearted. That person who sits across the table from you who you disagree with, who's done things to you they had no right to do, feel deeply for them. And then take action designed to do good in their life. So let me ask you, who's the person in your life you're sitting across the table from? Who's the person you, you, just, you don't see eye to eye? Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody you worship with. Maybe somebody you live with at home. Who's sitting across the table from you? And what would it look like for you to be tender-hearted towards that person? What would it look like for you to feel deeply for them? And what would wise, appropriate action look like for you to take on their behalf? See, we can sit here all day and, and go, I just don't know if unity is possible. And Peter's saying to us, it is. If you want it badly enough. If you walk the path of peace I'm pointing you to, you can have unity. So as we continue, I want to pray. And if today... There's somebody you know you need to be tenderhearted towards and you're wrestling with that. I want to pray with you and invite you to have a conversation with God about that. And if you're here today, whether you're joining us in person or online and you're not following Jesus, I would have you know Jesus was compassionate towards you. When you sat across the table from Jesus, didn't see eye to eye with him about God or life or how things should be lived and you went your own way. Jesus felt deeply for you and he did something about it. He came to earth, he showed you the way. He died on a cross to make right what you had made wrong and he invites you to come to him to find forgiveness find a new life if you're in a place where that's what you need I want to pray with you as well let's pray together Father thank you just for Peter for his words God if we're being honest this is so difficult But God, we want as your church the kind of unity that Jesus prayed we would achieve. And so Father, just that, that person who is in our life right now who we are struggling with, 
we just pray for grace to feel for them. Not to be mad at them, but to feel for them. And God, we pray for wisdom to see what, what would it look like in a way that's appropriate, in a way that's healthy, to take action that would bless that person. Again, God, we just pray for grace and strength to be willing to take it. Father, just, just for some of us here today, we want to say thank you for Jesus. Father, we've, we've been living life our own way. We have sinned. We've made a mess. We can't clean this up ourselves. Thank you so much that Jesus saw that and he felt deeply for us. Thank you that he took action, left the glory of heaven, he came to earth, he lived and he died in our place. In this moment, we want to put our faith and our trust in him. We want to surrender all of who we are to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.